0: Hi everyone, I'm Tanvir Nasir, and this is Leadership Biz Café, a podcast that explores some of the challenges and opportunities leaders face in today's increasingly complex, fast-paced, and interconnected global market. Leadership Biz Café is brought to you by Tanvir Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that provides both virtual and in-person leadership keynotes, corporate trainings, and consulting services that will help you to improve the way you lead. To learn more about our services and what some of our clients have had to say about our work, visit our company's website at tanvirdnasir.com. And while you're there, check out my award-winning, internationally acclaimed leadership blog as well. And now let's meet my guest for this episode, Adam Bryant.
1: We wanted to frame it in this way of just asking that question, why do people succeed or fail in leadership roles? And then once you identify those, What can we learn from CEOs about how to do those well? Because, you know, very often people focus on what is unique about the CEO's position. And we wanted to flip the lens on that and say, in what way is the CEO's job the same as somebody who's leading a team of 10 people?
0: If you enjoy reading articles and interviews with leaders to gain insights into how others approach leadership and the lessons they've learned, then I expect you're familiar with my guest for this episode. Adam was the columnist behind the popular New York Times column, Corner Office, where he'd interview executives not just about their leadership style, but what early life lessons serve to shape and inform how they view leadership. In addition to being the managing director at the Exco Group, Adam is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Corner Office, indispensable and unexpected lessons from CEOs on how to lead and succeed as well as Quick and Nimble, Lessons from Leading CEOs on How to Create a Culture of Innovation. His latest book, which he co-wrote with former Amgen CEO Kevin Scherer, is called The CEO Test, Master the Challenges that Make or Break All Leaders. And it's what Adam and I will be talking about in this episode. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe. Great to be with you, Tanvir. Thank you. Now, Adam, before we start discussing your book, uh, I have to start things off here by telling you how much I enjoyed reading your corner office column in the New York Times. It was really fascinating to read the personal stories and insights of leaders from all walks of life sharing not just their understanding and approach to leadership, but also what they found through their own life experiences as being the key to inspiring and empowering people to bring their very best to work. I appreciate that very much. And I'm kind of curious, before we delve into your book, what was the inspiration? What got you going? Because anyone who's read it knows that the questions you would ask would often pull out some little anecdote from their past when they were young growing up, maybe an experience with one of their parents, or maybe it was when they were a sports team, or even a summer job, that kind of you could see as they go on, discuss how they lead teams, how they deal with conflicts, how they look at managing innovation, you could see the tendrils of that story that they shared from their childhood, really influencing their approach.
1: Yeah, and and so just to provide context, so um, I was a business journalist for 30 years, 18 years at the New York Times. Um, I spent about 10 years as a business reporter and covered a lot of companies and industries and interviewed a lot of CEOs. And what I realized over time, it it kind of seems obvious in hindsight, but what I realized is that CEOs are almost always interviewed in the business press as kind of strategists, right? They're almost like football coaches, you know, what's your strategy for winning against your competitors and what's the competitive landscape and how are you going to navigate that? And that's fine that there was a good audience for that. And I enjoyed doing those, but I just found the more time I spent with CEOs, the more I just want to set aside those questions and kind of ask them, how do you, how do you do what you do? Um, and, ultimately rolled that up into a very simple what-if question, which is, what if I sat down with CEOs and never asked them a single question about their companies in terms of strategy or finances or anything like that? And just ask them instead of timely questions. Ask them timeless questions about leadership lessons they've learned over the course of their life, and how they've how they learned them, and you know how they think about culture and teams and hiring and career and life advice, and just these sort of universal topics. And I, in two thousand nine, interviewed five hundred twenty five CEOs. Never missed a week. And what was interesting is that every week I kind of. know i could always try out different questions because part of the goal is to get you know ceos off their talking points right because very often they're well prepped by their public relations people and and over time i i kind of fell into this pattern where i always started with the same three uh first questions which was tell me about when you were a kid like what were you doing outside of class were you in leadership roles um, tell me about your parents or whoever raised you. And then finally, how did your parents or again, whoever raised you, how did they influence your leadership style today? And I honestly found that, you know, when I got really honest and open and candid answers to those three questions, you really get a sense of the person as a human being. And everything is kind of like a dotted line trajectory off that you know that sort of initial start and those really important early in influences that kind of shaped them who they are today um and it it just you know it's it's been a great adventure to me I'm continuing to do interviews um in my different series on LinkedIn I left the times in 2017 to join my current firm called the Xco group we do executive mentoring at the C suite level but uh it's been fun i mean everybody's got some a- to tell. So, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always learning new things.
0: Adam, I love the answer you just gave. And, you know, I've been hosting this podcast for 10 years now. One of the things I've come to appreciate about interviewing people is that it's a great way to develop your communication skills because to be good at interviewing people, you need to learn how to do two things. Well, You have to learn how to ask good questions, but equally important, you have to learn to be a good listener. As I've often found, my guests will bring up a point or an idea that deserves a closer examination because there's something important there that's worth exploring. And I loved how in your description about like, I want to get past the leader's typical talking points. And we all have that, right? Because after a point, we get asked the same questions that we just kind of get these baked in answers and we don't have to give it much thought and our mind wanders. And I love how, in your explanation, you're pointing out how asking these kind of questions you did in your column, you really get to know the person and what shapes their understanding and worldview of how do you motivate people? How do you rally people around a common vision? And I think that's an important lesson for leaders in general to know that, you know, if you really want to get people inspired, motivated, you have to know what matters to them and connecting it to them. And you just shared a perfect encapsulation of how to do that by just being interested in In others and their stories, what led them to where they are today, and what's the journey they're hoping to go on? So I'm really glad you shared that thing, and as I said, I really enjoyed that column that you had in New York Times.
1: I I appreciate that, and you know, to the point you just just raised, like you can't fake that interest, right? No, you can't, (laughs) And, and and I've. You know, I generally always done it. Obviously, things had to shift to Zoom in the, the pandemic, but I've I've always done um, the interviews in person that I do um, because I just think there's something. I, I always like to think of eye contact is kind of the five G of communication, right? When you look at somebody in there in the eyes, you can tell if they're really listening to you or if, or if they're distracted and um, you know, I, my challenge in doing that interview series and in the interviews I continue to do is always the same. I, I will be meeting these people for the first time. And in the 75 to 90 minutes we, we have together, I, I need to get them to open up to me. And, and I'm not playing gotcha. I mean, I did investigative journalism. That's not what this is. I'm just interested in having a good conversation. But how do you listen in a way that people think, boy, this person is really listening to me, they're genuinely interested, they're asking thoughtful questions. And I think that's, uh, you know, such an important skill for leaders, it's an important life skill for everyone, because I think there's less and less listening going on in our society, I think devices are you know partly to blame for that a lot of conversations are just kind of serial monologues right like you know somebody's just waiting for the other person to stop talking so that they can say what they want to say right
0: <laughs> right now i know adam being a good listener is one of the ceo tests you write about in your book but before we explore that test i'd love it if we could take a step back and discuss this idea of a ceo test where did this idea come from and How did you decide that these seven tests were the most critical if you're going to be successful at leadership?
1: Sure. And I should mention, I have my co-author on this project is, is a guy named Kevin Scherer, who is the former CEO of the biotech company Amgen, built that over a dozen years. He taught leadership at Harvard for eight years. He was one of the first CEOs I met doing corner office and he and I stayed in, in touch. It's just one of the smartest guys um, I've ever met. And, and in this, we, we wanted to try and create the metaphorical T, if you will, um, in, in, in writing this book and that you know, the, the breadth of my now 700 plus interviews with executives and then just his incredible depth of experience as a board director as a ceo as a mentor he's been involved in like 20 ceo successions in different capacities so so that was you know the 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 thinking behind us coming together to do this and in terms of the the thousands of leadership books out there. Why does the world need another leadership book? And and we really want to sort of crystallize the, the point of the book in the subtitle, which is master the challenges that make or break all leaders. So yes, the book is called the CEO test. It's not just for CEOs, but we wanted to frame it in this way of just asking that question, why do people succeed or fail in leadership roles? And then once you identify those, what can we learn from CEOs about how to do those well? Because You know, very often people focus on what is unique about the CEO's position, and we wanted to flip the lens on that and say, in what way is the CEO's job the same as somebody who's leading a team of 10 people? And they're a middle manager. And so that was partly the frame that that we wanted to put on this. We did ultimately identify seven things. And of course, we started with, you know, a whiteboard. It's it's once you ask, like, why do leaders succeed or fail in, in their roles? It's very easy to put 300 things on a whiteboard, right? <laughs> right. And and it just it was it's kind of endless hours of us, Kevin, of Kevin and I sort of deciding, well, what are really the key things? Right. Um, and there was this phenomenon that we discovered in that winnowing process that the metaphor that we used as a shorthand is, is that of Russian nesting dog. There's a lot of ideas that can sort of nest inside other ideas. Um, and so ultimately we came down to, it's like, okay, these are the seven big reasons why leaders succeed or fail in those roles. And we also, we, we didn't want to just identify them, but we wanted to also provide a pretty, practical playbook on, on how to master those challenges. It's, it's, an, it's one thing to say, you know, this is really hard. It's another thing to say, and here's how to do it well. And we did, we tried to deliver on that. So that was the thinking behind the
0: book. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Adam, I, I wanted to talk to you about listening tests, but you've given a great lead in to discuss another CO test from your book. And that is the test. Can you develop a simple plan for your strategy? I mean, when you talk about leadership and I actually just had a short conversation with someone on Twitter about this, where they were saying, "Okay, well, this is really good in terms of communication, but I think transparency also plays a role. And I said, yeah, that's true, but then that also fits into the idea of humility playing a role in leadership, because in being transparent, you will have to also understand you're being transparent because you want to show humility that you're not always going to get things right, and you want to show people that you're wanting to learn and understand from others because you're not going to see every detail and realize everything that's going on, and you need their input. And this made me think of this particular test because I know you mentioned in the book how Kevin, your co-author asked in his various roles this question, which was, what's the big idea? You know, right? What are we trying to achieve and how do we go about accomplishing that? And of course, I'm sure if you've noticed in your conversations with various leaders, while this question can seem straightforward and easy to answer, many leaders can struggle with this, especially when faced with so many urgent short-term demands being put on them. And a good example of this right now is the ongoing debate over whether organizations should support hybrid work models. Which I find honestly, Adam, odd as at the end of 2020, many leaders I'd spoken to were so impressed with not only how their employees had adapted to working from home, but they were seeing significant productivity gains from the shift. And yet now these same leaders who are happy to have employees work from home are now eager to bring them all back, even though if you consider that question, what are we trying to achieve? Doing so seems to go counter to that answer. So I'm wondering, Adam, how do leaders go about creating a simple plan that would help them maintain their focus on what's the big idea, and not on these other issues that are often counterproductively taking up more of their cognitive bandwidth?
1: It, it, it's a great question. You point up what I think is a huge challenge in business because I do think in this world to make things more more complicated than they need to be, right? And and I, and I do think that. Of, of all the leadership arts i think this this ability to simplify complexity is is such an important skill just to take you know the strategy of the company and 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 set it within the context of the industry and all the macro forces that are shaping our society and to be able to stand up in front of the team at an all hands meeting, and I think it's the leader's job to sort of answer the kinds of questions that little kids ask in the back seat when you're heading off on a journey, which is like, "Where are we going? And how are we going to get there?" Right? And and so, you know, if you agree that that's the important skill, then how is that manifested? Now, to me, the most important manifestation of simplifying complexity is is companies articulation of their strategy. Now I didn't go to business school. I spent 30 years as a journalist, but one of the things in my consulting chapter in my career, working with, with a lot of leadership teams and going inside these big companies, is that I have come to realize that the word strategy is itself kind of problematic in so far as it's kind of a Rorschach test or a classic ink blot that you, that word means different things to different people. And what I often find is, you know, if you ask for strategy, that there's this dynamic at play and I I use the metaphor of different altitudes. So you say, what is your strategy? And some people go to this very high altitude um, to describe their strategy, which is very often just kind of like a, a a general description of what the company does, right? It's all, you know, it's almost like tautological, like, you know, to pursue high investment returns and build a best place to work. It's like, that's our strategy. Well, that's what any company does, right? That's not a strategy, strategy per se. At the other extreme, you ask me what their strategy is and they will hand you a list of 12 priorities for the next quarter. Right. And that's not the strategy either. Right. Those are just sort of tactical short term initiatives. And so it's that kind of middle altitude that I find companies often struggle with. And for lack of a better term, we just call it like, what's your simple plan? And through all my interviews, through all the reporting I've done, um, I, I, I had a, a second interview recently with somebody I interviewed years ago for Corner Office, a guy named Dinesh Paliwal, who uh, ran Harmon International. And he shared with me the template he uses for dis- discussing strategy with his board. And as soon as he said it, I said, that's brilliant. That's it. And it's a very simple one-pager. It's got four parts to it. And the first part is just a concrete summary summary achieve, not the sort of general direction of what the company does, but this specific question, of like, what are you trying to achieve over time period X? It might be two to three years, five years if you're a bigger company, 12 months if you're a smaller company. The second part is like, okay, that's what you're trying to achieve. What are the, say, three big levers you have to pull to achieve that thing? The next part is, what are the three big challenges you have to overcome to achieve those goals? And then finally, what is the scoreboard by which you are going to measure progress? And it's this simple one-page exercise. And we find that it has this incredibly powerful effect of grounding teams in a discussion, a kind of a shared language of what strategy is and should be. Because again, I just find everybody has kind of their own definition and everybody has kind of the strategy house, but very often they fall into this problem that i've noticed where they focus on priorities not outcomes and if i had a magic wand i think i would get rid of the word priorities from business conversations and the reason is that priorities are things that you kind of always you know can be working on always should be working on and i noticed this pattern when i would ask leadership teams um, for their lists of priorities i started noticing how many bullet points started with the same two words. And those words were continue to, if you need to continue to dot, 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 is that really a priority? I mean, I'm a human being, therefore I need to continue to eat and sleep and breathe, but those aren't really my priorities, right? And so there's this dynamic where companies say, okay, our strategies, our priorities And then it becomes almost like, you know, sort of name check for every single department in the company. It's like, well, we've got an HR department, so we need to continue to to hire world-class talent. And we've got a marketing department. We need to continue to build world-class marketing. And those, those are priorities. Those are not strategies. So, you know, just grounding the conversation in what is it that you want, that you need to achieve over the next time period for you to say, we had a good year or we had a good two or three years. To me, that creates a very different conversation around strategy than I think a lot of companies are having right now.
0: I absolutely agree with you, Adam. And it's interesting, you kind of got me thinking about another, and I think it's the perfect flip side of the same coin. I think a lot of people are probably thinking about this as well. And it's the other CEO test that is in your book. Can you make the culture real and matter? Again, because a lot of times we do get stuck in the processes, we get stuck in the details, and we lose that sight of that question. What's the big picture? What is it we're trying to achieve? And a lot of that also comes down to the culture, right? That's where we kind of are coalesced around not just their vision, but who we are behaviorally. What do we stand for? What are we all about together, collectively? And again, near the end of 2020, you know, after we had endured that first year of the pandemic, it was interesting. I had spoken with several leaders about how they were faring with their employees working from home. What were some interesting revelations they'd had from making this abrupt and drastic change to the way they work? And one of the interesting things to come out of those conversations was how two leaders from two completely different industries, told me that when the pandemic hit and they had to send their employees home, they were genuinely concerned about their company's culture because their employees were no longer working under one roof. In fact, one of these VPs admitted that he was a vocal detractor about keeping employees at home for too long because he felt that this would erode their company's culture. But after a year of their employees working remotely, he said he's now become one of the biggest advocates that a company's culture can not only exist, but thrive under such circumstances. And I think what was part of that realization and what builds on what you just shared is that your culture ultimately is about what matters to you. What is it you're trying to achieve? It's not what you're continuing to do, but what is it you're trying to achieve and what's the ultimate end goal? And what behaviors you've deemed acceptable to making that vision or end goal a reality? And when we think of culture in that way, it becomes easier to appreciate that it's not about the location, but it's really about what we say, what we do, and how we treat one another in our everyday interactions, however they may happen, in pursuit of that goal. And I think that understanding also makes it easier to think of an organization's culture as being like its fingerprint, right? It's unique only to that organization and can't simply be replicated or grafted to another So with that in mind, Adam, if we think about the test we've discussed, how can a leader know they're succeeding at this test of making their culture real and instructive if each culture is unique in its own way?
1: And and I, it's interesting the the point you were making about pandemic. Just touch on that for a second. I it, I think it has been such a cultural stress test for companies. And those those examples you mentioned, I'm betting they had a pretty strong culture beforehand because um, you know there is that sort of stress test. You know, every, between the pandemic, the social justice crisis, everything that that companies are going to get through that crisis if they had a strong. culture. Didn't strong culture begin with, and everybody's working at home. Um, it probably just exacerbated the the challenge there. Um, but on, on the broader question of culture, you know, I, I find it handy to frame things in terms of like, what is the, the good movie version of a good culture? What's the bad movie version? And I think the bad movie version, anybody who's worked in a few places has probably come across it where you know culture is manifested in whatever list of values that are on the back of your employee badge or maybe they're hanging in the you know the the, the foyer of, of, of headquarters um and those values were you know drawn up during an executive offsite or something and hardly anybody knows what they are right? Um, I often teach exec ed classes and sometimes I'll ask the, the audience, like, how many people know your, your company values? It is very rare that more than like 30% of the hands go up. Um, and so in, in that context where it, the values are simply not lived, in some way, it's actually a dangerous exercise because if you have people who are being promoted and they are they're manifesting behaviors that directly contradict the values, then that just makes everybody cynical. And cynicism becomes like this cancer that can go through the organization pretty quickly. So, you know, unfortunately, like that is way companies operate. the, The good version is that the values are, you know, a lot of thought goes into it. Um, I don't think there's a, a right way per se to draw them up. You know, the, Ideally you want sort of input from the people, but it's got to also, the CEO has to get involved and, and make sure that there are real stories and real behaviors underneath whatever those values are. Um, I tend to have a bias towards values that call out some specific behavior, rather than a broad amorphous word like excellence and integrity, because, you know, you can't operate with excellence at every moment (laughs) that you are at work. Right. Um, but, uh, And we go deep on this case study in the book, um, the company called Twilio, they're a cloud communications company in Silicon Valley. Um, And they have this list of values that I think is a model in many ways and just how concrete and specific they are. And in many ways emerged organically from the culture, because I think the best values sort of feel like they capture the unique DNA of the company. And and I will say on Twilio's list is one of my all-time favorite values, and there's a great story behind it. So many years ago, there was this internet meme that that sort of went viral um, on uh, on how to draw an owl. It's like a two. In the first panel. Just draw three overlapping circles. So three overlapping circles. And the next panel is a fully rendered owl, and underneath it says "Draw the rest of the owl." And there's a curse word in there that begins with the letter F. But you get the point. And the whole point of the meme is like just figure it out, right? You want to know how to draw it out? Just figure it out. And this this meme went kind of viral internally at the company, and they adopted it as one of their values. And an owl became like the company mascot. And it just becomes this almost like this internal hashtag, the shorthand for just figure it out, right? Because we are in this era now where, you know, there are very few jobs now where somebody sort of says, here's the playbook on how to do this job, just follow the playbook. Most jobs today are, you got to write the darn playbook right and and just sort of having that mindset of like just figured out captured in that kind of catchphrase that is unique to the company i think that's the kind of stuff that makes the concrete sorry the culture feel very real then beyond that it's just once you identify the values it's it's really just the degree to which they are reinforced at all the different touch points you know are they are they involved in in and referenced in the hiring process the onboarding Behind the values, the specific behaviors that are expected, are people promoted based on them? Are they people fired based on not following them? Do you hand out quarterly and annual awards? All of these things add up to people feeling like, okay, this is real, as opposed to just words on the back of my employee badge.
0: I completely concur with you. And I'm loving this journey we've been taking as we discuss the various tests you write about in your book, Adam. But before I ask you about the next one you've now brought to mind, I'd like to share this message from our show sponsor. If you're looking to build a profitable side hustle that also impacts people, then you need to look at becoming a certified leadership coach with Giant. If you don't already know, Giant has been in the leadership space for over 13 years They used to own and operate the John Maxwell brands. They ran the LeaderCast conferences where Jim Collins, Henry Cloud, Malcolm Gladwell, and Simon Sinek were regular speakers and a lot more. They have over 500 coaches working in over 127 countries, and their coaches are being hired by companies like Pfizer, Chick-fil-A, Delta, and more. And yes, you can do this too. Giant literally gives you everything you need to start your own leadership coaching business from scratch. You get hands-on training from top-level coaches to learn the exact methodology and tools that six-figure coaches are using, an all-in-one online platform to run your entire coaching business, even if you want to work 100% remotely, and you'll get to join a thriving community of coaches from around the world. To get started, Giant is hosting a coaching business workshop to help you learn the ins and outs of how to build a successful coaching business, even if you're just starting out. This workshop is 100% free and you can reserve your spot by going to giant.tv/tanvir. If you're ready to impact people and get paid to do it, go to giant.tv/tanvir. So Adam In discussing the CEO test about making the culture real, you talked about alignment between the values you use to define your organization's culture and the behaviors you encourage and support within the workplace. And this notion of alignment brings to mind another CEO test from your book, the one called Can You Build Teams That Are True Teams? Lately, there's been a growing focus on teamwork and in particular on how leaders can foster greater collaboration within their organization. And I think... Much like innovation, we're starting to lose sight of what it means to be truly collaborative. And in this chapter of your book, you share four simple but really powerful questions leaders should be asking about the teams they lead and the people on them. I was wondering, Adam, if you could share these questions and why are they important for leaders to reflect on in terms of the teams they build? Sure. And, and just a point of
1: context. I mean, we, we do a ton of work with leadership teams and, and often we will start sessions with them saying, like, what do you want from each other? And we almost always hear the same answer, which is we want to have each other's back. Right. There's a sense of like, you know, we want to trust each other. That's kind of a, a universal thing. And yet most teams are kind of teams in name only. Right, right. As much as people say they want to have each other's back, there is this dynamic. I mean, I've I've always joked that there's a there's a reason why HBO ran Game of Thrones on Sunday night, which was to get people ready for work the next day, right? Um, because I, I I think a lot of teams operate with kind of a Game of Thrones mindset, which is like this is a zero sum game. We're competing for resources and attention from the boss, and for for me to win, you have to lose, right? And that's kind of the approach, and it's also just sort of human nature. It's kind of understandable, right? Like in the absence of sort of clear articulation of what the behaviors are going to be, people are just going to start fighting for, you know, resources and attention, you know, to advance their particular ambitions. So it's completely understandable, but because of that, it is the leader's job to create this kind of over to those, any sort of Game of Thrones impulses that might happen on their own. So there's lots of different frameworks out there for thinking about teams, but Kevin and I just tried to keep reducing it to first principles, which is like, what are the four key questions that have to be answered? And the first one is, why are we a team? And that may seem like an obvious question, but sometimes, you know, when you really, you sort of get asked, it's like, well, we're a team because every company has a leadership team and that's why you're a team. It's like, no, why are you a team? What is the purpose of having a team and meeting together as a team and that tends to lead to an interesting conversation because a lot of leadership team meetings are are really just everybody taking their turn You know, doing report outs to the boss while everybody is looking at their phone under the table, right, waiting for their turn. Right. Um, And so, there's only, to me, there's only one answer to that question of like, what is the purpose of the team? Which is to accomplish things that you can only accomplish together as a team, right? Like, what are the big lifts that you need people from different functions to work together to accomplish? So that's the first question. The second question is who should be on the team, and you know, one of the things I've heard from, from so many leaders is this challenge of, of being very clear on sort of where the bar is that you're going to set. Because what very often happens in our mentoring work with leaders, we'll often say, you yeah, know, start hearing things like, you know, this person's really loyal. They've been with the company a long time. You know, they're really good glue for the team. And we'll stop them and say, that's not what we asked you. Like, tell us about their performance right? And are they getting better every year? Um, and very, ans- very often the answer is no. And so there can be this slippery slope that leaders sometimes get on where they start excusing away, you know, maybe slightly substandard performance of people on their team. And so at some level, you've just got to be really demanding and say, this is what I need from my team to get us to the next level and be willing to shift, you know, shake up the team again, rather than just always sort of making excuses for people. The third question is, how are we gonna to work together as a team? And there was a great example from a company, uh, service now um, in in San Francisco, and they the leadership team there created what they called a social contract at an offsite. And they actually kicked the CEO out of the room so that they could work on it together, but basically drawing up a contract of behaviors that they were gonna expect from each other. And um, it, it, it was so powerful, they even painted it on the wall outside the executive office so that everybody could see it. But just this is how much they believed in. Like one example from that was they talked east-west first rather than north-south. And what that means is if somebody on the team has a problem, don't just go north to the CEO to fix it. Work with your peers east-west to try and solve it first before you go to the CEO, because they were trying to sort of counter that dynamic. And then finally, what is the leader's role on the team? And the leader really needs to reflect and actually needs to own more than they might think in terms of their role on the team. Because I've I've seen a lot of leaders over the year, they almost keep this kind of arm's length distance from their team and maybe the team is slightly dysfunctional and they'll sort of scratch their head and say, why is my team so dysfunctional? Like, why aren't they getting along better <laughs> when they're not, they kind of need to look in the mirror and recognize like they're the one who's setting the tone, setting the expected behaviors, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the kind of four key questions that we think lead to productive conversations. And one of the points we made at the beginning of the book is like, we want the book to help you know, start productive conversations rather than to end conversations.
0: Adam, I have to tell you, these are my favorite kinds of questions because on the surface, they seem pretty straightforward. And yet, if you really spend some time thinking about them with regards to the teams you lead or the teams you're a member of, it can lead to some really powerful insights. And I especially like the question, what is the purpose of this team? because I think many leaders and their team members often lose sight of the answer to this. For example, I served a number of school governing boards here in Montreal, and one of the things they all did was starting the meetings going over all these reports, which is why I was like laughing when you brought up that point about people just standing or going, taking the way they're trying to give reports. Right. And, and I mean, this would easily take up a majority of the meeting time. But when I was elected chair, one of the first changes I implemented was not only to move reports to the end of the agenda and put the new business items at the start but I'd ask the various team members who often shared reports to send them to me in advance so I could share it to the team before the meeting. That way, everyone could read the reports and all I'd have to ask is if anyone had any questions. If there were no questions, we'd just move on. And people were generally amazed not only at how much shorter the meetings I ran were, but how much more we got done. And I think it's because I got us to focus back on what the purpose of our team was. Namely, it wasn't just to sit there and listen to someone reporting information. Rather, we were there to address the present and future needs of our students and the school at large. So it's a simple question, but one that I think if leaders and teams keep an eye on, it can really ensure they remain both productive and efficient with their time.
1: Right. And and the purpose, I mean, you just articulated this, but the the team's purpose is then manifested in the about what you're going to spend time on and sort of you made that shift of like all this sort of tactical report out stuff that's less important. So, Mm -hmm. you know, again, I think the, the meeting agenda will tell you a lot about how
0: the team operates. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I realized too, after reading this chapter of your book, that that also that action, that behavior really reflects that last question of what is the role of the leader on the team? And I realized that was my role was to make sure I'm going to make sure I respect and value the time of everybody at the table. That if you're here, you're here for a reason and I want to value the reason. And it's for you to share your input, your insights to those. So that if there's something we're thinking of, oh, we hadn't thought about that. Here's what we should look into addressing next. So it also helped me realize that that's another key element to that process.
1: Yeah. And, and another way to, I think, spark a productive conversation about the purpose of the team and also the purpose of those meetings. I mean, I've interviewed a couple of CEOs over the years who would do this kind of like either a meeting audit or they would just occasionally do this process of like, let's cancel all our standing meetings and and then sort of build from scratch and say, like, why do we need to meet, right? Because it's very easy for those meetings to just become this sort of like activity or whatever. But it's almost like the meetings have to defend themselves. right? <laughs> exactly. Like, what is this meeting for? And if we were starting this meeting from scratch, like, what would we do that would make it useful? And, and so I think sometimes we, we need different ways to get out of our own heads and look at things with fresh eyes.
0: So Adam, I mentioned at the start that there was one particular CEO test I wanted to discuss with you, and I haven't forgotten about it. And it's the CEO test. Can you really listen? And one of the reasons I love his test is because in one of my workshops, I do this listening exercise with leaders that helps them appreciate how much we've been conditioned to anticipate what the answer to a problem is. And oftentimes this is because most employees have worked for leaders who act like they're the smartest person in the room because they have all the answers. And yet, as you point out in your book, leaders not only face the problem of not really listening to others because they're busy formulating a response to what their employees are telling them, but what people tell them is often only half or less of the story that employees will often withhold information, either because they don't want to bring negative attention to something or themselves, or because they've learned from past experience that no one listens to them. So how do leaders go about addressing this test to make sure they've not just become more aware of what people are saying or not saying, but they're also creating that environment where people feel it's not only safe to actually share what needs to be shared, but that those in charge generally care about what they have to say.
1: And I, I always think of it as a two-step process. And the first one is, is just a being aware of the phenomenon of being trapped in a bubble, and you know, the the higher you go in an organization, the more you have to recognize the degree to which information that's coming to you is compromised in in some way, shape, or form. Because nobody wants to bring the boss bad news, so everything is you know two thumbs up. Everything's going great, boss. Um, and it's uh, unless you are you know aware of the fact that everybody is coming to you with an agenda and that there's things going on in your organization that you don't know about because nobody wants to be the messenger. Like you're really going to be lost. And, and we referenced this uh, scene from uh, the Sopranos, the great HBO series that, um, you know, I, I was watching years ago and I was going, that's perfect. And there's this scene where, Um, Tony, the lead character, the mob boss, you know, he's arguing with his wife and, and she's saying to him, it's like, you know, these guys laugh at your stupid jokes, not because they're your friends, but they're your flunkies. Like they work for you. And he sort of snaps at her and planted the seed in his head. And then later in the episode, he's playing poker with his friends and he decides to test his wife's theory. So he tells an intentionally stupid joke, a really dumb joke or like, um, what do you get when you mix an accountant with a giant airplane, a boring 747, right? And at that point, the the camera does this so slow pan around the poker table to all the guys who work for them, and they're laughing at him like he's Dave Chappelle, right? Like the funniest person on earth. And then there's this kind of slow blink of recognition on Tony's part that like Carmela, his wife, was right. So it's that, that sort of the first part is recognition that, you know, you are trapped in a bubble. And if, you know, I always say like the cliche of no news is good news, you need to turn that on its head when it's when you're a leader, because no news is bad news, because it means you're not hearing the bad news. Right. So you've got it. The bad news is happening. And then you have to take this sort of make this overwhelming effort to find out what is going on in your organization, and that's like a multi pronged multifaceted strategy, of you know, not only sort of listening, being a good listener one-on-one in the moment, where there's you know, just with your body language, being present, not judging, just listening for comprehension, sort of setting that tone to make people, you know, in a team setting, if somebody disagrees with you on something, you could say thank you for pointing that out or being honest about like. I totally blew that decision and you know, I really appreciate you guys sort of rewarding the people who bring bad news and setting that tone. And then beyond that, it's sort of literally creating an infrastructure in the organization. Um, And Kevin had this um, real epiphany because he's the first person to tell you he was a terrible listener in many of his early years as an executive, but he had this crisis that he realized he had to own in part because he was a bad listener. And one of the things he did at Amgen was on the annual employee survey, um, he would put this open field on the questionnaire and say, what do you think of the job that Kevin is doing? And you know, open field for people to write in their comments. And he would read those every year and often at night, as, and as he said, with the, often with an adult beverage, you know, nearby to uh, let help some of the feedback go down. But that's just an example of like, you have to take deliberate intentional steps to find out what people are really thinking.
0: Absolutely. And I have to tell you, Adam, this is the one CEO test I think a large number of leaders are really failing right now. If we look at how much we have this ongoing debate about hybrid work environments, especially considering in the spring, there was a lot of discussion that, okay, this is going to be the norm and we're all trying to figure out what we're going to do. Because when I look at some of the stories of the leaders you've shared in your book, it's clear that they understood their roles to help their employees be successful in their roles, that made them understand that. What they need to consistently ask their employees is what do you need from me for you to be successful? And again, that mirrors what we were talking about in those four questions about how do you build a true team with that? What is the role of the leader on the team? And if I look at the context of this current discussion around hybrid work environments, we can see that many employees are clearly stating what they need, and yet leaders are opting not to deliver it. Not because it's not feasible or impractical or cause a loss of productivity, but rather because it's not what they want. So I'm hoping these leads will join the ranks of the main leaders I've actually spoken to who admit for them, they see hybrid work models as becoming the norm and that it's something unavoidable and really their focus is on really just how are they going to deploy it effectively within their organization? What makes sense for them as opposed to debating whether it's a good idea or not. And consequently... I think those leaders and hopefully other ones who will catch on to this will be able to pass this test you write about. And as you mentioned, get outside of that bubble that they're in where they're not really taking into account the full picture.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I gotta say, I think leadership is getting harder by the day and and listening is how much do you listen? I mean, we're in this era now where employees often feel like they should have a voice, if not a vote in the company's policies and, you know, you, you don't run a democracy as a leader. On the other hand, you have to sort of acknowledge what people are saying. So the, this this whole listening skill, I just think it's, it's, again, it's multifaceted and it's becoming more and more important.
0: Well, Adam, I could tell you that in reading your book and the stories you share in it, that There's a clear sentiment that comes across, and that is for leaders to look at themselves as a work in progress, that you not only have to check in to make sure you're doing what you said you do as a leader, but that you're seeking feedback and guidance on how you can improve and become the kind of leader that people want to work for. And again, it's such a treat to speak with you after reading your columns for years. I really enjoyed hearing your insights and thoughts on how leaders can address and overcome the challenges that are part today's landscape. And as an added bonus, it's always such a treat to also be able to speak with a fellow Montrealer here on my podcast.
1: Uh, uh, excellent. Well, I appreciate, you know, your smart question. It's been a great conversation.
0: You know, I mentioned to a friend recently how I've been hosting this leadership podcast for 10 years now. And he asked me if it's still fun to do. Well, Considering this year alone, I've had the chance to speak with Tom Peters, Jim Couzes, and now Adam Bryant, whose New York Times column I read for many, many years. The answer is an obvious yes. And I can't wait to see who will be the next guest on my wish list that I get the pleasure to speak with and share their insights with you here. So I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Adam today. And if you did, I'd like to encourage you to share this episode with your colleagues and friends. The easiest way to do this is to simply share a link to our podcast page at Tavignasir.com slash LBC, where you can find links to subscribe to my podcast on all the major platforms, as well as links to the show notes for each episode. And please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review my leadership podcast on your preferred podcast platform to help support our podcast and encourage others to check us out. Now, If you've been enjoying the insights I've been sharing here on my podcast and would be interested in having me share them with your team and organization, either through a leadership workshop or in a keynote at an upcoming event, I'd like to invite you to fill out the contact form on our website at tabinaseer.com so we can start that discussion. You can also check out the speaking page and workshop page on our company website to learn more about my speaking services and the kinds of topics I cover. And with that, I'm Tavi Nasir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.